Last week, great! The Bundesliga's back! This week, oh, the Bundesliga's over. Football is now out of lockdown in Denmark, Poland, Serbia and the Czech Republic. And we now know it's coming back in the next three weeks in England, Spain and Italy. Hello from Will Downing and my fellow locked down football commentators Mark Rodden, Stefan Jorni and Dimitro Zulai. In this edition, it's visits to England, Germany, Poland and Denmark for us. We're talking to Lisa Fallon, who's just been appointed manager at London City Lionesses. We'll have one of the two Irish players in Polish football and one of the three Irish in the women's Bundesliga in Germany, also getting underway this weekend. But the good news is that football is coming back in four of the five biggest leagues in Europe, including Germany, where it already is back. So, gentlemen, what are you looking forward to most? Stefan? Well, as usual, like the big clubs and, uh, and the leagues, like La Liga, for example, Serie A ultimately will come back at some point as well. The Premier League, uh, I know the players are back to full training. And, uh, but one of the major concerns we saw with the Bundesliga recently, uh, the number of injuries. We know, like for example, maybe uh, Serie A will struggle and might overlap with next season. So the players won't necessarily have the time to recover. And you look at to do Euro 2021 next year and the World Cup as well. It's going to be very, very heavy schedule for the players. That's a major concern on my, my, you know, you know, my side. But yes, it's great to see uh, the football back uh, on screen. We talk about the major top five leagues in Europe, as, as you said, as you mentioned. But France is not being back. They will suffer financially from that and probably been punished on the transfer market uh, or the Mercato this summer. Great to see uh, the top players... Uh, from La Liga, the Premier League, on the Serie A, on the pitch, and uh, hopefully no major injuries in the coming few weeks for the, the best best players. Uh, that's you know sad you know to La Liga. The Liga is back, but uh, Victor Valdez, if you remember the goalkeeper from uh, Barcelona and Standard Liège as well for a bit, and Manchester United has been announced as a new coach for UA Horta. It's a Segunda B uh, club in Spain. Mark, what are you looking forward to when things get back to normal? Well, obviously. <laughs> Close title races in La Liga, Serie A, um, Portugal as well. One point between Porto and Benfica. I'm looking forward to seeing Liverpool get their title. I think they deserve it. They deserve to get it on the pitch. And also looking forward to fans, if possible, getting back in uh, safe conditions with um, Poland announcing that there'll be 25% of capacity from, I think, June 19th. So that'll be interesting in the extra class of... A reminder that it's still very serious, though, with that news that Brendan Rodgers kept it quiet but had um, coronavirus as well. So that was two Premier League managers at least. And Ian Wone, the Burnley assistant, tested as well. So it is still a very strange time and we still have to take sort of uh, baby steps. But as Stefan said, France is a an outlier at the moment. Front page of L'Equipe on Friday pointing out, you know, it's the only one of the big leagues... You know, like like idiots was the was the phrase on the on the front page. The only one of the leagues to call it so early on April thirtieth, I think it was, and then Edouard Philippe, the Prime Minister, has now said that they could be back up and running collective sports, that is, by uh, June twenty first. So did they call it too early? That's gonna be a big debate in France for the next few months. Surely the the biggest loser from uh, season uh, nineteen twenty. There's not even a question about it. And uh, and the players will use the value of the market because they're not playing. And uh, there's going to be a huge loss of revenue for clubs like Lyon, for example, who wants to sell, especially Marseille, who's struggling financially. 
and were looking at to sell players, even though they qualify for the Champions League. But players wanted, you know, will, you know, like Florent Tovin, for example, if you like, you know, 12 months ago, was worth like, you know, 50, 60 million. Now, you know, how much can you sell him? I have no idea, like. But then on, on, on the other side of that, you have Jean-Michel Olas still trying to claim that, you know, maybe we can get this uh, back up and running. You know, it's not too late to, to change our mind. And during the week, Andy Delors responded to him, you know, being a Montpellier player, we had a real serious case of coronavirus within the club. One of our players was, um, you know, in real trouble with it. We were shocked. We were afraid for him, for ourselves, for everybody. So that another reminder of, of why the league, or one of the reasons why the league in France was uh, called so early. Yeah, it's political reason. Uh, we know that. And uh, Noel Legreit uh, put the plug again. There was a meeting last Wednesday and decided the uh, League 2, there will be relegation and, uh, and promotions as per usual. And even though... There was discussion before that and prior to that meeting on Wednesday that uh, the League 2, the championship in France, would be played next season with 22 clubs. And there was an agreement between all the presidents and chairmen for the clubs. But Noël Lagrette, who is clearly the boss of the French football, decided, no, you can't do that. At the last word, and uh, basically is running the show and uh, he tried to avoid uh, cases in courts because uh, he did exactly the same thing for non-professional leagues in France. And uh, he replicated that with the... Uh, League One, League Two, and the third division. So, Dimitro, what are you looking forward to most when uh, things open up in most countries again? Then, championship and late uh, Andy Marcelo Bielsa being promoted. It's more about Bielsa, of course, for me than about late. But it would be great to see that club back in the top flight, and of course, uh, to see Marcelo managing in the Premier League. And also, I'm looking forward uh, for the return of Copa Libertadores, but I still don't know when it's going to happen because the situation in some of the countries in South America is really, really bad. And I have to agree with Mitro, it's quite exciting to see uh, Leeds uh, in such a good position for, you know, to get promotion automatically in the Premier League. Because if you remember last season, Marcelo Bielsa, the system completely you know, fell apart the second half of the season because he doesn't rotate his squad. That's one of the weakness for Master Wilson, you know, my point of view, that he would stick with the same 11 for the, the full campaign. But maybe the break, you know, was benefit, will be beneficial for Bielsa and his mind and, uh, and we'll get, you know, automatic promotion to the Premier League. And what have you been watching this week? Well, the usual stuff, uh, what we mentioned before, but also the football is back in Czech Republic. So I watched a few games in there. And actually, it's interesting that in Przybram, they had fans in the stadium. I don't know why, because in Prague, it was an empty stadium for the second division game, Dukla Visočina Iklava, but uh, in Przybram against Bani Kostrava, they did have some fans, and it almost seems surreal. <laughs> in Friday night's action, Salzburg won the Austrian Cup, beating Austria Lustenau 5-0 in the final. It means Jesse Marsh is the first born and raised American coach to win a European trophy, and the second American-born boss after... John Caulfield of Cork City. Red Star Belgrade have clinched the title in Serbia, a record 31st for them, beating Rad 5-0. And in Germany, the Bundesliga is pretty much done after Bayern Munich's midweek win at Borussia Dortmund. Joshua Kimmich with the only goal in the stroke of half-time. That allied with Leipzig's 2-2 home draw with Hertha Berlin and Borussia Mönchengladbach's goalless draw at Werder Bremen means Bayern lead Dortmund now by seven points with six games to play. Leipzig are nine points down. A Dortmund win and it would have been down to a single point. Not quite as tight as it looked as if it was going to be, Mark. No, uh, unfortunately for any neutral, I think it was um, 
a disappointing result, but we've kind of become used to it because uh, I mentioned it with the Union Berlin win for Bayern in their first match back. It was very similar. Did enough to win. Dortmund, I just had a feeling they had to take their early chances. They didn't. Brilliantly executed goal by Joshua Kimmich, but you'd have to question Roman Berkey, the goalkeeper, interestingly, showing the uh, level of detail that goes into these matches. Both Kimmich and uh, Thomas Muller said after the game, you know, we were told or we noticed that Berkey takes a couple of extra steps forward. So he is vulnerable, you know, compared to other keepers to being lobbed from that kind of distance. And that's what happened. That was the, the goal that decided it. And um, a talking point as well, the, the handball by Jerome Boateng, goal-bound shot by Haaland that wasn't punished with a penalty, perhaps because Borussia Dortmund took a corner very quickly and uh, the VAR team didn't have time to intervene then. They can intervene whenever they want. It it is a penalty. It's a Stonewall penalty. I didn't know how they could have missed it. I don't really understand that. To to me, the referee was more the the problem there. He should have spotted that. It was uh, clear, but then Dortmund, the players at the time didn't really seem to notice, to be honest. They didn't complain too much. And something quite interesting, I'm just jumping on completely, you know, a different subject because, you know, we talk about the players being back, but already in the Bundesliga, some managers under pressure, like David Wagner, uh, Shackel Nulfi, uh, I know he just received the backing of uh, his sporting director, Jochen uh, Schneider, but uh, it's only um, one win, 2020, uh, four draws and six defeats for uh, David Wagner. Schalke is a big club in Germany. They were hope, like you know, to well, obviously to climb up in the European places, but it's not, it's not going really well for David Wagner, who's been uh, re, you know let go as well by Huddersfield when they get you know when they got relegated last season. But uh, it's a strange, you know, uh, a strange situation for Wagner and Schalke because I, I do believe he's a great coach in great ability and he's, he's, he has got a lot to offer. But it seems that he struggled now, you know, to uh, relaunch or revive, you know, his career even back in Germany. The Danish Superliga resumed on Thursday night with a one-all draw between AGF Aarhus and Randers, with thousands of fans able to attend virtually, with the live feed from their homes being shown on big screens in the stadium in Aarhus for some atmosphere. Søren Højland Carlsen from the club joins us now. So how did all this come about then? It came about in the, because we uh, were getting used to talking like we do now. Uh, I had a lot of colleagues who were sent home, working from home. And all of us were supposed to be working from home for the first two or three weeks of the corona crisis in Denmark. Then a couple of us were allowed to back at the office. But we were still using Zoom, Teams, all this technology to talk to each other. And that gave us the idea, can we use this technology to scale up and get a lot of fans uh, engaged in the game? Because, of course, when you don't have the fans at the stadium, you, you miss this community and the fans miss the opportunity to meet each other, to see each other, to greet each other. Because football is not just about football and the game and the players. It's about the fans and the community surrounding the games that is missing right now. So uh, could we use the technology to recreate that somehow? Uh, and then we talked to the guys to assume how can we scale up a meeting? Now we're talking just one-on-one. And they said, in theory, it would work. You can have as many people as, as, as you want to in, in big meetings. So when they gave us the okay and they said that this can be done, then it was just a matter of developing and experimenting. And, and yeah, last night we had, the, we, we had it for the first time and it was a big success. We were uh, 10,000 tickets out 
But uh, as we noticed during the game, a lot of the ticket holders were gathered, maybe two or three in front of the television, maybe a family. So uh, I think we were closer to 30,000 uh, was, who was uh, watching the, the game and being together like this. So it was a great success. So how were you able to link it up? A whole load of different Zoom rooms or something like that, something similar? Yeah, we, 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 ha- we made the concept that you could buy into uh, a section of, of, the, of the stadium. So if you're a season ticket holder, you used to have maybe section A, uh, number 11, and you could have that same seat. And, they, and that gave the opportunity so, to meet the other season ticket holders. Because when you go to football games, I think it's the same way in Ireland and all over the world. You meet people that you only see at games. Of course, you go with maybe family or friends, but you also meet people that you only see at games. You have the guy who has been there for, for, for 50 years and he's shouting every, every 10 minutes. You have the young couple who are sitting there that you greet at the game. The, 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 those people you could meet in, in, in the Zoom environment because if they wanted to be there, they can also take part in the same sections. So we had 22 sections and, and there we could just fill in with the people. And then we have an away stand for Anna's fans. And we have a section for neutral people who didn't want to sit together with other Aarhus AGF fans. For those who were sitting at home, what were they seeing back? Was it a TV view of the game or something different? Of course, they have to have the signal, perhaps on the television or on the second screen mobile device or whatever they use. They, they will watch the game there. And then they, will, they saw, just like we're seeing now, but in multiple 18, 20, 25 people, all of them in AGF jerseys. And then they could see how do they, how do they re- react when runners score, people were upset when runners score. Uh, and then they could see the other fans when we score a late equalizer, actually a very late equalizer. And, uh, I think it was 92 minutes or 93 minutes. So they could, they, they could be together at, uh, around the football and experience each other's joy and feelings. And, and today we have seen some of the footage, footage from it. And it's, it's actually, it's very moving to see the fans, how do they, how do they re- react? We have the old couple who are kissing each other when we equalize. We have the young fans who are jumping up and down. Uh, so all these reactions, and it just emphasizes that football is feelings. And I talked to uh, one of the players afterwards, and he said he was... He, he didn't realize how, how this was going to work, but when he saw the fans' reaction, he got very touched and moved by it because somehow the screen em- emphasized those feelings when you see the stands. Of course, you see tens of thousands of fans at the stands and you see there and you feel their emotion, but seeing it one-on-one, seeing a couple, seeing some friends and only see them, that amplifies this feeling. It was actually, it was some sort of an intimate experience. It was um, a new experience and, and it was actually, it was pretty moving. Are you liable to do this again for future games? There's not much left in the regular season in Denmark now. No, we have, uh, we have, this was a postponed game. So we started off after the Corona and now we have two regular games left in the playoffs. Yeah, so we have two games left and the next one is on Monday at home against Odense. And we will have that there because we have the screens up. It's a massive logistic experience to put the screen up and down. So why not let it stay there? But then we go on away. We play two away uh, games. The one in the Super League, which is the last one. And then we have a cup game. And then let's see how things are. Maybe in Denmark, we are hopeful that we can get spectators. Maybe 500, 1,000. 
And if we get that opportunity, we're not going to do it again because, of course, we prefer to have people at the stadium in real life, real flesh and blood, and even 500, even 1,000 people, even in our big sta stadium, that will make a world of difference because then you will have the opportunity to create this community, to have the community like we know it before around football. And I must say, I, I, I use the word community a, a lot and I've been done for the last couple of days, but these times has really emphasized to me how important fans is for football clubs and especially clubs like ours, who is a old, historic, big club in a city. We are one club city. Um, when people can't come and see our games, it's... Uh, it's sad and it's something that we are missing in the everyday life. And uh, so to get the opportunity to see them yesterday, to experience, it was moving. And we are hoping we can see just some of them uh, later on so they can be back at the stadium. And who knows, after the summer break, after this season, hopefully we can have uh, all people back. Soren, thank you very much. You're third in the table, so still a lot to play for. So thanks for joining us. Fingers, third in the table and in the semi-final of the cup. And, and we haven't won anything in, in 23 years. So this season, we are crossing fingers. So Michelin are doing their drive-in football on a bank holiday Monday in Denmark uh, this weekend. But what about what Aarhus did then for their big screens on the far side of the pitch? Well, I think it's better than uh, having plastic dolls in the stadium or cutouts uh, in the stands, which is, it's more real, well, as real as it can get in those uh, situations, but uh, apparently it's something interesting. Did they win? Did they win? It finished 1-1. Okay, so they got on better than Borussia Mönchengladbach, who had the uh, cardboard cutouts of fans against Bayer Leverkusen and lost at home. And Korea, we, we had blow-up dolls until it was realised. And was it FC Seoul, actually? They, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, they only realised too late what kind of blow-up dolls they actually were. <laughs> so the Austrian Bundesliga on its way back as well, Mark, next week. And Lask Linz have had a little bit of a hurdle to get over. Yeah, they went back to uh, full contact training before everyone else. Um, film emerged. They were unhappy about... Uh, how that film emerged but the 11 other teams in the league were very unhappy with uh, Lask and uh, as a result they've been fined 75,000 more importantly they got uh, a 12 point deduction off their regular season points total which translates to six points off their total for the championship playoffs so instead of being out in front going for their uh, first Austrian Bundesliga title they are now three points behind Salzburg, who are going for their seventh in a row ahead of uh, a 10-game playoff series. So that league uh, getting back underway on Wednesday, and they're playing Wednesday, Sunday, Wednesday, Sunday, Wednesday, Sunday, until July 5th. So um, it's a really intense schedule for them there. So we have uh, a new Irish boss in women's league football in England with the London City Lionesses. It's Lisa Fallon, who had been on the coaching team at Chelsea. Uh, congratulations, Lisa. How did it come about? Cheers, Will. Yeah, I think um, it's, uh, as you say, a week is a long time in football. But um, yeah, I think I just had a couple of conversations with Diane Culligan um, in the board and, and the board. And, and once um, we felt there was common ground, um, things kind of escalated quite quickly then and um you know we had some really good frank discussions and and 
once we got to that point, I felt this was going to be a really positive move. I felt there was huge potential at the club and um, I think they were a good fit for me. Um, so, yeah, once it was, um, once it became a distinct possibility, I think uh, things just rolled pretty quickly from there. It was a very awkward time in football full stopover in England. How's it been for you for the past couple of months with no football happening? Yeah, it's been really weird. I think, you know, when you're when your whole life is centered around football and suddenly football is gone, I think even chatting to other people in the game, it's it's just like it's I think initially it was a really, really big void. But personally for me, I actually it was probably the first time in about fifteen years I had more than one week of work. So it was it was actually a welcome break and a, a great opportunity to reflect because I felt, you know, in my, with my time with, um, you know, as the journey started back in probably 2010, 2011, really since then, the breaks never went on. And, and I went from doing my B license to my A license to my pro license, then straight into the LMA diploma in football management, which I finished last year. Um, and then within that, you're also working full time in in the game so it's been um it was probably the first time in a long time that i was actually able to stop and take stock and and just have a little bit of a breather so and great to spend time you know more quality time with the family as well and you know because when you're in football you miss out on things um you're, you're probably not able to go to all the family things that you would would normally be able to go to um miss out on a few 60th birthdays and stuff like that so albeit by zoom we've been able to uh, catch up and um ha- have great chats and and spend some time albeit virtually but i've actually enjoyed the break um and um, a time to reflect and uh, reset so yeah it's been it's been actually really quite nice and the Lionesses uh, fourth in the championship when football ended in England. So, you know, in a good position, a very good foundation then. Yeah, absolutely. I met the players on Wednesday, um, albeit by, you know, a virtual call. But um, between since then, I've been able to chat to most of them now one to one and I'll chat to the rest of them today. And, you know, they're, what strikes me is they're a really positive group of players and very talented. You know, there's there's so much potential in the group. Um, and for, the you know, such a young team um, and a young club um, to finish in that position in the first season, I think, was, was, was is a great platform to build on. Um, and I'm really, really excited about just getting back out on the pitch now and being able to work with them. Um. And how does it feel then being interviewed, I suppose, mainly by all your old colleagues, having been a, a sports journalist for so long? Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's funny, like, because I think, um, you know, when I was 12, I always wanted to work in football. And I was, when I was kind of 11, 12, that was around the time of Euro 88 and Italia 90. And, like, I was... You know, in those most influential years, you're watching the Republic of Ireland in, you know, these major championships and we beat Brazil in 1987. And, you know, it's, you know, we were a really good team then and they were massive role models for me. And and I just, oh, I wanted to work in the game so much back then. And um, and even I remember in secondary school, I, when we started, they'd no girls team and 
I could only play in boys' teams, so I convinced the school to um, to set up a, a, a women's team or a girls' team, and it, the team is still going. Actually, my daughter goes to that school now, and she played in the team, and the same teachers are all still there. So um, when I go to the parent-teacher meetings, it's it's great crack, you know, because we're still talking about the old days when we won the when we won the FAI schools competition. So, um, but then. I suppose during those kind of formative years, I, I I thought the only way I could work in football was to um, work in sports reporting. I thought it was the only way. So I pursued that. I, I, I made that the, the career choice and I went after it and I loved it. I mean, enjoyed it so much, worked with some incredible people and had some amazing experiences all across Europe following sport. and. You know, getting to talk about it and watch it and interview incredible managers and players. It was, you know, it, it was such a, a privileged time. But deep down, I always yearned to be on the grass and and in the dugout and just part of the whole thing. And and I, I just, it just wouldn't go away. And um, and then eventually, I suppose around 2010, 2011, when when I suppose the coaching and the analysis aspect of it started to intertwine with what I was doing um, it started to become possible that there might be another way to go and I didn't know where the road would take me or you know what might be at the end of it or where the stop sign might be but all I know is I haven't reached the stop sign yet and it's it's been an incredible journey and really exciting and I, I enjoy every minute of it I really really do. So hi, uh, you mentioned the word role model, and also you, you you were telling how you actually made those people to create a, a girls' team in the school. But when you moved into coaching and you worked with men, and I understand that there was no one you could turn to and ask them, what do I do now? So who were your role models, especially in the coaching? It's really bizarre, but I don't know if you remember, but back in 1989, there was a program on Channel 4 called The Manageress and Sherry Lungi starred in that as Gabriella Benson and she became the manager of a second division team in England. And that was the first time in my life, I was 12, that I saw a woman in football. And that planted a seed to me that it was possible. But I knew, it, you know, doing what she was doing probably wasn't possible, but I still knew, it still gave me hope that a woman could work in football. And, and to be fair, how, how many years are we since then you know that was 1989 31 years since then it still hasn't happened um but it, you know in the professional men's game in the uk but um it's not to say it won't and i'm sure it will but you know that she was my role model even though she was a fictitious character she was my role model and then my granddad also was a huge role model for me because he was just a really good authentic hard-working man and and, and, and I got those values from him, I think, you know. Um, and then I suppose as I advanced, more and more people became role models for me through mentorship or people I got to work with. And but, but yeah, like my, my, my initial role model who inspired me was a fictitious character, unfortunately. But I'd like to think that that's different now for, for girls and for women and, and for everybody that, you know, we, we've got great people like Katie Taylor and, you know, there's a lot of really good um, female role models for, for young girls now to aspire to. And in terms of 
you know, your coaching career to date, you've been involved with Northern Ireland, with Cork City, and that in tandem with your journalism career at the same time. How, how did you manage to keep the balls in the air or keep the plates spinning? Yeah. yeah, I think um, really once, once I felt there was a little bit of crossover, I just moved away from the sport. That, so when I was working in League of Ireland, I just didn't cover League of Ireland. I focused on rugby and Gaelic football and, and hurling. Um, and then once the international stuff happened I just moved away and didn't cover international stuff so it was like you're always just trying to be authentic but not compromise any area that you're in um and and it was just it was just about I suppose making the those decisions along the way and 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 trying to be um as honest as I could um without compromising any situation and and you know it's really important to be able to have um, trust, people's trust that you work with. Um, and I, I think, you know, you don't, you can't work at that level of the game unless people trust you. Um, and it's very important to respect that trust that you get um, and not betray it. So for me, it was always about that. And and gradually, you know, as, as, as it kind of moved further and further along, it ended up that I was really only covering Gaelic football and, and hurling in, at, at the end um, before I made the full transition then into, into you know, professional football. And you'd involvement in Gaelic football as well, of course, for a good bit prior to all that, quite successfully. Oh, with the dubs, yeah, yeah. No, it was, uh, that, was, that was really interesting, yeah. I got, um, I got a call, I think it was in... December, November 2017, Cork City had just won the double, or we were in the middle of, of I think, you know, that, and um, the opportunity came up, and so, you know, I met Jim and had a conversation, and you know, after that we decided that it, it might be, it would be good, and uh, so, yeah, it was, it was an amazing experience, um, very good to test yourself in a different sport, um, and also, I suppose my purpose there was maybe to, to look at it through a different lens and, and, and see it in a different way and, and was there a different perspective that could be considered. But again, um, that was an amazing experience. All players and managers and the coaching staff, backroom team, incredible people, um, so dedicated and it was a real genuine privilege and I learned a lot in that environment, mm. a lot. I mean, Northern Ireland as well, their most successful period since the 80s. Uh, and you were there as part of Michael O'Neill's backroom team. O'Neill having been very good for uh, the couple of years he was at Shamrock Rovers, sort of revitalising them, winning titles again. Yeah, look, that was that was an amazing journey as well. It was, um, you know, it started off with making motivational videos for the team and then it progressed to doing other bits and pieces, film and training and, and bits and pieces of analysis and stuff. So, yeah, it was, again, it, do you know, for me, one, one of the most important things is like the tactical stuff and all that kind of stuff is, that's the, just the nature of the game. That's the nuts and bolts of the job. But the real experiences and the real learning I felt it, with, with the different teams, with the different cultures and the different, working with different philosophies and learning to understand the game through different managers' eyes and how they want to translate that information to players and, and what their philosophies are on the game um, and, and how you 
how you mold things and, and adapt to things as things change. Um, and also working with the different players and, and different coaches. And you learn so much from the people that you work with. Um, and in every environment, I just found everybody so different. Um, the nuts of bolts of preparing the team and, and, and preparing training and all of that was the same, more or less. Um, you know, but, but the key difference in all of it was the people um, along the way and, you know, how you experience those different cultures and, and, and all the time you're kind of picking bits and pieces going, yeah, I really like that and I'm not sure I would be able to do that or I would, that probably wouldn't be a fit for me. Or, and, and again, it's just like the learning you get in those environments is incredible. And um, yeah, I'm really grateful for the opportunities I've had to, to work with those managers and, and to have their trust to, be work, to work in those environments. Lisa, you worked as an analyst and analyzing importance and uh, the trainings of the teams you worked for. How much of that now helps you being a manager? And uh, as a manager, how much attention do you pay to th this kind of analysis? Because as you said, there are many different people. As I understand that sometimes analysts just have to, well, sort of do what they're told and adjust to the uh, team uh, they're in. So, how, how much of the analysis impacts you have in your work as a manager now? Um, I think the actual nuts and bolts of analysing the game is a small part of it. How you translate that information to the players so that it actually means something to them in terms of how they perform and the decisions they make on the pitch was the biggest part of the learning because players have different ways of taking information on board whether you present it in a team environment, if you present it in small groups or if it's a one-to-one -one, um, and, and what you do and how you bring that information across, whether it's through video, through use of the tactics board, through conversation or through physically doing it on the pitch. So, um, and sometimes part of my role wasn't me actually translating the information to the players. Sometimes it was me translating the information to the manager or the coach who was going to take that part of the session. So for me, that was um, almost being like a translator. And for me, actually, working in radio was a brilliant learning ground for that because in radio, you're watching a game that the people listening cannot see. And your job, you might have 90 seconds to tell those people and paint a picture of what is happening in the game, the atmosphere, the flow, what it means, you have 90 seconds to capture the essence of that and make the, and connect with the listeners so that they feel connected to the game or part of it. And it was, it's only in later years that I actually started to understand how valuable that skill set from radio actually became. Because effectively, if I go and watch a game and I come back and I'm telling the manager or some of the players about certain aspects, they're effectively the radio listener. They're blind to what I've seen. So for me, I actually think that that radio work in all those years served me brilliantly in terms of having the, the ability to, to do that. How did you find the move into women's professional football then with Chelsea? Because we've obviously seen over the last 10, 15 years, a lot of large, by comparison, women's clubs sprout up who are mainly affiliated to large men's clubs. 
Yeah, it's um, oh, it was different. Um, women's football and men's football are quite different. Um, but the will to win, the professional preparation, the the you know the resources at Chelsea were second to none, and Emma Hayes has done an incredible job at bringing the women's team at that club to the level that it is now, um, and and the club believe in the women's team, which for me. I really loved, like you never felt like a second-rate citizen. It was, it was, everything was 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 really, really spot on, um, and that's that's the future for the women's game. Um, so for me, the differences really are again, and you know, it probably it sounds maybe a little bit cliche, but the people again, it's different. Delivering to a female dressing room and to a female squad is different to de- delivering to a male squad um, because. The game is slightly different as well, um, um, tactically, um, and and then also it's the personalities that you're dealing with. So it's um, you require different skill sets in both environments, and that was something I really had to learn as well. Which again, making that transition was really good because I became very normalised and very conditioned in a male working environment. Um, in male in men's football, particularly at that level where every result matters and jobs potentially de- depend on the results. So moving into women's football, it was a really good opportunity to sit back and and see it and understand it and and understand from me that it, I would have to adapt certain things about what I might have how I might have done things before. I would have to adapt that. So from that perspective, it's been a great learning experience. Um, uh, and uh, actually a really good valuable stepping stone before I've gone to ma- before I, I start now with the managing the team. So you're moving now to Dartford, the Lionesses who were based in Millwall for a few years, a side who was, you know, I've said fourth in the championship last year, so there's definitely potential there. What was it about the Lionesses that, you know, attracted you, tempted you that said, Yeah, I, I think I could do something good here? The potential of it, like it's just oh, it's there's such a young club and a young squad and um, and I include my 29-year-olds in, in, in young when I say 20, when I say young. Um, but yeah, it's um, the vision for the club and the, the ambition for it. Um, I love the fact that it's a journey that we're going to be on and, and we've got this opportunity now to really build something. Um, and that I love that process of building and going in and, and building towards something and, and gradually putting the pieces of the jigsaw together and watch it come together and, and seeing the players, you know, even speaking to them, the, their ambitions and their, they've all got personal ambitions and collective ambitions. And, you know, I think it's a really privileged position to be in as a coach or a manager to help facilitate somebody to work towards their ambition. And I'm really, really lucky that I've had incredible managers, incredible coaches who took chances on me when it probably wasn't the done thing to put a, a woman into an environment and into a highly competitive environment, but they believed in me. And as I met the different challenges, they continued to encourage me and push me and challenge me to get better every day and to either decide, look, the setback is there or it either makes you or it breaks you or, you know, you learn from it or you, you walk away from it. And that encouragement and that, um, you know, that investment from all of those people, coaches, mentors, um, people outside the game, people inside the game that I didn't necessarily work with, 
sometimes worked against and it was you know but that that level of investment that people put in me is why I am where I am today and now I have that opportunity to do that for another group of players and and, and a club and I just want to try and draw on all the experiences that I've had and push and and try and help to facilitate another group to have some of the opportunities that I've had and certainly to try and help them to to reach their potential. Mm. So for you then, um, what would success be in this job? Oh, success, it's it's a funny thing. Like it's so it's it's a different thing to so many people, isn't it? Um everyone you ask has a different picture of what success looks like. But for me I think just to get in and to give it my best shot and to really maximize my learning so far and, and c contribute as much as I can and work as hard as I can and that to me ultimately will will I suppose my own work um, and my own contribution to it will measure my success I'm quite process driven um, I, I enjoy the work um, and then I like to see other people have the the moment and so yeah I think success for me will just be that the players are happy and that they're enjoying coming to training and that they enjoy the games and that the fans enjoy coming to watch us play. That for me, uh, and obviously that the board are happy to keep me in place for a while, that would be that would be success as well. Yeah, the response I've been getting the last few days has been phenomenal. I, I certainly, I know there's certainly going to be a strong London Irish representation there. I've had contact from people over in London and saying, you know, we'll we'll be down to support you. And and I went to university in in Kent, which is um, so I lived there for six years uh, back in my uh, late teens, early twenties. So I studied um, sports science at Christchurch University in Canterbury, and I played for Gillingham and Sittingbourne during those times. God, many many moons ago. But um, but yeah, no, I, I would know a lot of people there, and um, so. But I'd be hoping that um, you know, that we'd be able to drum up a bit of local support. And, and look, to be fair, the club is doing incredible work with local teams and um, community. The community work is huge, so that the club is embarked on. So all those things, I think, you know, will help us to to drive the crowds and 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 get a few more London City Lionesses fans into the ground and I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to meeting them all and, and, and hearing them where I'll be probably socially distanced but you know it'll be great to see people back in the stadiums when it's safe for everybody to, to have that. Nice one, hope it goes very well Lisa. Thanks so much Will, thanks Dimitro. So Germany's Women's Bundesliga is underway this weekend with champions Wolfsburg going 11 points clear of Bayern Munich on Friday night after beating FC Köln 4-0. Ireland's Amber Barrett sent off in that unfortunately. Diane Caldwell saw her SC Sandside strike first but still lost 3-1 at FFC Frankfurt. The third of the Irish players in Germany, Claire O'Reardon of MSV Duisburg is joining us now. What's it been like in the past couple of months, Claire? It's kind of been it's unreal at the moment. Well, with everything that's kind of going on, life has changed a lot for a lot of people. For me, I was away with the Irish team and I was due to come back to Germany for everything closed up shop. I uh, decided to fly home. So I spent uh, about two months at home in Ireland. And then obviously with the restart of the Bundesliga, I had to come back. 
like you're one of three Ireland internationals currently based in Germany. Amber Barrett with FC Cologne, uh, Diane Caldwell with SC Sand as well. You've obviously come across them a few times this season. My team has played uh, both Cologne and Sand so far this season, so I have come across them within the next three games. So this weekend we have Leverkusen, our first game back, but the second and third game we have Cologne and Sand, as far as I'm aware. So I'll actually be seeing the girls quite soon. Um, thankfully, so it'll be nice to see some familiar faces and just to see how they are. It's actually really nice to have some Irish over here as well, just knowing that they're here and I'll run into them at some stage of the season, you know, and see a friendly face and have a have a good Irish catch-up. You'd miss the Irish banter sometimes over here. <laughs> yeah, I bet you would. Um, I mean, generally, outside of this period, what's life been like in Germany for you as a, as a professional footballer? Yeah, it's been a big change. Um big lifestyle change really but you know I, I suppose the biggest thing for me was just kind of getting used to all the training that a professional does like even more like on double days and, and going to the gym and things like that putting that all into your weekly schedule and then obviously you'd have a lot of a lot of downtime you'd be kind of trying to fill sometimes obviously you need to rest and recover and get ready for the next session but then you know having free time obviously over here I came to a new country where I was leaving my family and my friends. So thankfully, I have some really good teammates uh, on the team and I get along with everyone. The typical thing is go out for coffee, I go for lunch or grab dinner, you know, just go for go for a walk or go for a drive or just go to the city somewhere else. So it's treated me well. It's taken some time to get used to, but I think I finally found my, my feet this season in filling the gaps. I brought my guitar over as well, actually. That helped a lot. You play quite a bit then? Uh, well, I, I play a small little bit. I, I, I try and do the best that I can, but music has always kind of been in my family, so uh, guitar always kind of interested me at, at a young age, so I um, decided that it was time to bring it over. I was going to buy a new one, but then I said it'd just be as easy just to bring it over. I'd be on the dog when I wanted. A family of singers, is it? Well, there's a few singers and a few musicians. A few of my cousins um, and my niece play the piano, the, the violin. Guitar is actually pretty big. I have two cousins as well, that, or three cousins. I have a cousin actually in Kildare. He's in a band. He plays quite a bit in Dublin. My niece had a, an exam over Zoom when I was at home during the break. She passed. She did very well. She got 93 out of 100, so we were all delighted for her. But yeah, so she's following the footsteps and... It's just it's a nice thing for the family to have. We can all bond together when we get together and have an old sing song or whatever. What restrictions have you found then in the build up to football being resuming in Germany? Well, I suppose the biggest restriction is actually being in quarantine in the hotel in the city because we can only leave the hotel when it's go to the training centre. And even still, like when we have to go for the corona test, it's to our men's stadium and then we go directly to the training centre. So there's nothing in between. So we're in the hotel other than that all the time. But in terms of the, the restrictions, as I said, the most important thing for everyone that they have to abide by here is, is wearing masks. Otherwise, you won't be allowed to actually enter into a facility. And are games still being played on a home-and-away basis? Um, as far as I know, yes. 
our home games have actually changed from PCC Stadium to our men's stadium, which is going to be a nice change. I think a lot of a lot of players are looking forward to playing men's stadium because the field will be quite nice to play on compared to what we have been experiencing at PCC. Um, but I do believe Yena are having a bit of trouble because they're not allowed to train until the 5th of June, I think. I'm not entirely sure of the logistics on the whole lot of it. But as far as I know, where they're based in the state that they're in, they're not allowed to train as a unit until the 5th of June. And our league starts this weekend, so I think they give up home advantage. So I think they might be leaving to go and play the game. But again, to be honest with you, I don't, I don't bite into what on too much in the rest of it because I just try to focus on what we're. Doing. It's hard enough to keep up to grasp what what you know the schedule here is, making sure that we don't miss information, you know, with the translation of German to English or English to German and things like that. So I just try and focus on over here. And it must have been quite welcome as well, as you've already alluded to, the fact that you now know the upcoming fixtures for the Ireland international team as well for the remainder of the year. Yeah, so that was actually a, a nice surprise for us all to get. A lot, I think a lot, everyone was really happy to, to see that our games have been given a date to be played. I suppose the next thing will be to get them played on the day um, and hopefully that that can boost. So we've three up in the group stages and two big games well three big but obviously it will be one at a time and the first game will be in September against Germany away so that would be that would be an interesting game to play it will be and I mean it's so far so good top of the group under you know a relatively new coach and Vera Pau as well so everything seems to have gone well to date yeah everything on track um, as planned you know I think we set, we set ourselves goals in which games we need to make sure and secure three points by. Possibly a bit of a hiccup with the Greece game, um, conceding a late equalising goal. We left two points behind us, but you know we won't dwell on that. But it's over and done with, and all we can do is focus on on what's ahead of us, and that will be the first game against Germany and getting ourselves up to hopefully get a positive result that help us in securing a qualification position. And just basically on the club scene, obviously the main target is to stay up with Duisburg for another season. Yeah, so that would be the goal for the remainder of the season is to secure first league football for next season. We have seven games to play in the space of four or five weeks. It'll be a heavy toll on the, on the squad and, and on the bodies to, to do so over the next few weeks but we'll take it game by game and we've identified which which games we need to try and secure three points or at least eight points um, but this next week will be will be big for us in I think maybe how things are going to shape up for us for next season Claire O'Reardon of MSV Duisburg Good luck for the rest of the season. 
Men's action is underway again in Poland with a huge clash of Lech Poznan and Legia Warsaw being a major Saturday night highlight. There are two Irish players in the country, Killian Sheridan of Wisła Płock, and in the second flight, Eric Malloy is in a mid-table position right now with Stomel Olsztyn. What's it been like there for the past couple of months? Thanks very much for having me on. Um, what's it been like? It's been difficult, I suppose. Trainings and matches and all cancelled and you're put into quarantine and told you can't train or go outside your door. It has been tricky. But I think um, Poland have kind of really gone to the forefront and tried to get back football as quickly as possible because I think it benefits everyone getting it back, like fans, clubs, players, everyone. So I think from the minute this quarantine really happened, they were following the guidelines from the government, but they were always thinking how to kind of nearly try and get football back or get it close to be coming back and trying to nearly push the boundaries, but trying to be as actually following the proper protocols. So there was no any of the government laws kind of being broken. They kind of set out then a schedule every kind of nearly two weeks for clubs to kind of follow and stuff. And they either added to it or kept it the same depending on the situation and, and the laws that were in place. Yeah, we're, we're finally getting back to playing now um, with our, the rest of the league uh, on Tuesday. Yeah, and where you are at the moment with uh, Stummel Olsteen is 12th place, but you're five points off the promotion playoffs and six points off the relegation spot. So, I mean, in one way, you're very, very well placed. Two wins out of the last five, two losses as well. So it's kind of been 50-50 in form uh, heading into the lockdown. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, um, the one thing that stands out about this league, it, it's a very tight league. There is no team that's, like, far ahead of anyone else. And I suppose, uh, yeah, one win or two could bring you a, few, a good few places up the table. We're very optimistic. Like, we're very positive. I feel like we kind of made one or two signings at the start of the year. And training has been going really good of lately. And, and you can start to see um, some really good patterns and... Some of the things we've been working on are starting to come off. We're feeling very excited, very happy to be back playing. And uh, we're really looking forward to push forward. We, we want to finish in like the top five, top six, the promotion spots. It is mainly a, a, a Polish squad. You've got Czech player, Japanese, Albanian, Ukrainian, a Latvian goalkeeper. So it seems like there's a good mix of nationalities there. Yeah, no, there is. There's, there's definitely a good mix. But the one thing, at first when I arrived in, it was a little bit difficult with the, with the language. Most of the people spoke Polish, but some of the sign-ins that have been brought in, they've all have really good English. So it's kind of been a, a bit of a positive for me. So I can talk and bounce more of my ideas off more of the players and kind of make more friends because it, it's very hard to converse with someone that has zero English and I have zero Polish. There's only gestures and, and smiles and different things that, that communicate. So a friendship can kind of only go so far when you, when you can't really communicate. But yeah, there's a wide mix of players. So there's a very good experience and um, some different uh, ideas and stuff on football, which is always good to talk about. I mean, it's a sizable city. It's a regional city. How did you end up there in the first place for this season? Um, well, I probably came back from New Zealand. I, was a bit, I spent three years out there for well, three seasons. And I came back to Ireland and, and I was thinking about what I was going to do next. I, I was trying to move on or move up. I had an option to stay in, again in another season as well in New Zealand, but I decided I wanted to change to something different. Yeah, I've tried a few options. I was exercising a lot of contacts and stuff. And this kind of came up on a period where um, I didn't really have anything on that week. They said, if you can get over, like I think this was on the, on the Thursday, and they said, Oh, well, if you can get over on the Saturday and Sunday, we'll have a look at you. So I literally said, right, 
I booked a flight and I got over there, I think, Saturday and, and I trained and all week. At the end of the week, I liked it and, and they liked me as well. So they offered me a contract and I said, well, look, there was only six games left in League of Ireland. Most other places, they, they're kind of finishing or in the middle of the season. These were just kind of starting and I thought this would be a good, like, kind of fresh start. Get in here and try to uh, perform and, and play professionally, play every day. And I said, yeah, I liked it. So, so I eventually signed. And here, here I am still. Uh, but I mean, you've had really a remarkable career because you, you were with Arklow Town, uh, you were with Wexford for four seasons, five seasons. Then you went to Southern United. Then you were in Wellington. So three years in New Zealand and then Poland. And in one way or another, those are all quite remarkable moves. So how did they come about? Um, each move kind of came about a little bit differently. When I went to Arklow, I, I was... I was actually playing with FC Carlo before that. I don't know. It was like one of them forgotten clubs that somehow they didn't survive. But I thought I wanted to play underage football because I was only 17 at the time. So I wanted to play under 18, you know. And um, I went to Arklow under 18s. And then I kind of ended up uh, playing in their senior team then by chance. But I was looking to play in the under 18s, you know, and do well in under 18 football. My old manager for FC Carlo, Shane Keegan, got the job in Wexford. Even though before that, Noel O'Connor was on to me to come down before that. And I said, no, I'm not going to come down halfway through a season. I want to start a fresh start or nothing, you know. And uh, Shane Keegan then got the new job. So then I ended up going down to, to Wexford and played there for four years. That was great memories, great experience. And then it was an opportunity that came about um, that I heard of. The, the, a great opportunity to go to New Zealand from one of my former um, Ireland University managers and Carlo IT managers, Paul O'Reilly, and he got a job out in New Zealand and then eventually got the head coach of Southern United and he was kind of asking around for players and I heard of this opportunity so I said I just asked Paul, you know, what's going on, what is the situation? He kind of said, yeah, he was very interested and would like me to come out and kind of propose something for me and I was like, well, this is kind of an opportunity I can't turn down. It's only like three, four months and I can come back for League of Ireland season. But I ended up liking it so much in New Zealand that I, I stayed for a year, longer than I thought. And then I ended up doing well that season. And when I played well against my old team, Team Wellington, um, in some of the matches we played in the league. And I, I did well. I scored like seven goals and a few assists for Southern. Like in comparison, Southern have never, probably only won one match in the whole year in the last three previous years. So now we've won a few games and I'm scoring a few goals and they're, they're kind of rising. People took notice of that and I probably um, had a few options. But when Team Wellington came in, I was like, yeah, I, have to, I just have to go. And it was an article um, that I said oh, I wasn't going to be signing with Southern and they seen it. And the manager got in contact with me and that's how I ended up in Team Wellington. And I really liked it there. So I stayed there for two years. And then, um, yeah, I was probably missing home a bit and the Ireland. And I kind of learned a lot from Team Wellington. And I thought... I want to try and move on and, and get into the professional setup. And I could have stayed in Wellington and been comfortable and enjoyed the lifestyle, but I said, no, I'm going to go out and search for something a little bit more um, challenging. And that's what I kind of did. And I, <laughs> the, the challenge led me to, to Stormill. It's actually a really long, interesting interview. We'll play it out in full for you next week in a special edition. Good luck to Eric Malloy at Stummel Olstein, uh, Lisa Fallon at London City Lionesses, and Claire O'Reardon at MSV Duisburg. Should be an interesting end to the season. That's it for now. We'll be back midweek as the Primera Liga in Portugal kicks off once more. As usual, please do like, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
We're also on YouTube these days as well, but in sound only. For Mark Rodden, Stefan Johnny, Dimitra Julai, and me, Will Downing, until next time, it's goodbye.